As the Father loved me, I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my law, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's law. And remain his love, in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. This is my command, commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friend. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call your you friends because everything I heard from my father I have made known to you. You don't didn't choose me, but you I chose you and appointment you so that I you could go and produce fruit and so that your fruit could last as a result whatever you ask the father in my name he will give you I give you these commandments so that you can love each other Thanks be to God. Amen. I invite you to pray with me. O oh Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I was thinking about this week, one question was, was rattling around in my mind. Um, and kind of guiding my thoughts in preparation about thinking about this idea about where our guilt comes from, specifically when we think theologically. And, and that is this, what is God like? What is God like? Now, now one way we might frame that would be asking a question, now what, what, is, what is your picture of God? But, but I don't want to focus today on really what does God look like? I'm not really interested in in questions like, uh, does God really appear uh, male, or like I don't, or or does God have a white beard or not, or or how does that work, or like racially, how is Jesus? All of those things. I, I'm not really interested in, in how does God look. More more like, what does God act like? Because I think asking that question, what does God act like, informs then our opinion about how we view what God is like in the world. And I think some of us have this view of God that what God acts like is like a 1950s sitcom like Beaver when they would say, just wait until your father gets home, right? And that was, that meant that like the belt was coming off and the punishment would begin, right? And I think that's how a lot of us have an informed somewhere in us perspective about who God is. That or it's kind of like Zeus 
or the Greek or Roman gods who we have to like appease. Whenever you read those stories about those gods in the Greek and Roman ages and, and, and the myths about them, it's always like we have to do something to appease the gods. So we, and, 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 and all, all the gods have this thing running basically like so they can get the, the good stuff and kind of appease whatever the gods want. It's all about bargaining in that case or making the gods happy. So I think what we get then is this picture of God as judgmental. This picture of a judgmental God. And for some of us who finished reading the Bible all the way through this year, we definitely had some times, especially in our Old Testament section, where that picture of a judgmental God sure seemed true or sure seemed real. But, but as I thought about this and as I was thinking about this whole series about guilt, even during December, I wanted to, to focus on this idea that guilt should not be our primary motivator in faith. Yes, I, I believe there's a time for guilt. I believe there's a time for guilt in the Christian faith. Guilt often leads us to confess our sins, to recognize that what we have done or who we are before God uh, isn't, isn't good or righteous. And recognize that we can't save ourselves on our own. And then at that point when we have asked for forgiveness, when we have repented, that guilt is over. Part of overcoming guilt in our lives is accepting the forgiveness and the love and the grace of Jesus. David Zoll, when he talks about this issue of guilt and how we view God, talks about it this way. He says that in, in, in this view of of a high anthropology where humans are just really good. He says the church transforms from a hospital for sinners, a hospital for sinners, which is classically what the church was called. It transforms from that into a schoolhouse or even a boot camp for saints. The emotional engine of the Christian life then switches from gratitude to obligation, and in some cases, fear. So, if the emotional engine of, of the Christian faith is gratitude, well, that, that's shaped by how we view God, what God is like. But if the emotional engine is obligation or duty, which Lord knows at some point for some of us, uh, obligation had something to do with our faith, right? And, if, and then even from a place of fear, then I don't think it's really the correct motivation, and not only that, but it's not full of joy or anything like it when we live Christian faith like that. When I was in college, the church I attended for a year, my first year of college, um, was, was a little bit fundamentalist, let's just say it that way. And I was attending this church, and they were talking about the big, the big fall event they were having at that time of year, and, and they called it the Judgment House, okay? They called it the Judgment House, and I don't know if any of y'all had this. That, uh, one of the favorite things they did right before prom, uh, when I was uh, when I was in high school, was they would like have a simulated car crash and bring in the jaws of life um, to show you the dangers of pursuing bad acti bad activities on prom night. Okay, and so it was meant to scare you, right? Judgment House was that times ten because. You first went into a room where you saw an accident or something like that, and then you went into a room that was made to be the house of judgment or hell, and it was literally more scary than any, than any haunted house you've ever been to. And then you went into the heaven room, and it was just really nice and airy, and then the question was asked, 
Now, where do you want to go, right? And, and that, was, that was the tag. And they would talk about how 240 people made a decision for Jesus. And I would say, well, of course they made a decision for Jesus. It was just scared into them royally. I would just love to know what they're doing the next week. But anyway, um, and, but, but, but the motivator in the judgment house, and I didn't stay at that church much longer after the judgment house, um, the motivator was judgment and fear out of faith. The motivator, the motivator was God's ready to take you out, so you better be on the right side, right? The motivator was the billboards you see driving south on 95, right? It, like, you've seen them. You, you, you've, you've read the word repent really huge and things like that. And what I want to say is that we have this passage that was beautifully read for us from John 3. And it begins, right, with the verse that we're familiar with in John 3. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And a lot of us know that verse, and I believe that verse fundamentally is true. But Jesus didn't stop at that verse when he was talking to Nicodemus in John 3. In verse 17, he says this, God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In other words, the purpose of Jesus' coming is not judgment, but saving. And I want that to inform our picture of God and what God is like. The purpose of Jesus' coming is not judgment, but saving. David Zoll says, A high anthropologist looks to God as helper and guiding force, but in the long run has a hard time remembering that he is a savior. A religion of low anthropology understands that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He forgives, he saves, and he resurrects. I don't know about you. Those are three things I can't do for myself. Forgiveness, saving, and resurrection. More than being someone to emulate, he says, Jesus delivers those who fail to emulate him with any consistency. So God's main role is not judge, but savior. And then... When we turn to John 15, I want you to hear these words that we learn about the picture of God. Jesus says, no one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls us his friends. To be friends, Jesus says here, is to give up your life for another. To be friends is to give up your life for another. Jesus exemplifies service. This here is happening during his farewell time, probably the night before, the night before Jesus is murdered. And he is exemplifying service. He gives them com the commandment to love each other right after he has washed the disciples' feet. So to be friends is to give up your life for another. It's to look out for the other first. To be friends, Jesus says also, is to be let in on what God is doing. To be let in on what God is doing. Jesus says, servants don't know their master's business. They don't know the ins and outs of the, of the company, right? And Jesus says, but I'm letting you disciples in. I'm letting you into the inner work that is going on, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to what I am up to in the world. 
that is what Jesus invites disciples into as friends. And then that love that exists pours out into the world. This, I think, is what Jesus frames all through the Gospels as the kingdom of God. What God is up to in the world, this love that pours out. So that ultimately what Jesus is saying is that to be friends with God is to love others. To be friends with God is to love others. There is no way to be a follower of Jesus and to be judgmental and condemning. Jesus' commandment here, in fact, the only one, the one he's going to focus on is the greatest commandment, right, is this, love each other as I have loved you. That's the focus. Love each other as I have loved you. So we started out today by thinking, what is God like? What picture of God do we get? I think a lot of us have this image of God as judgmental, or at least we're fearing that judgment from God. And the world only knows the image of God that they get, and maybe it's the one that we've inherited as well, by answering this question, what are Christians like? What are the followers of this God like? And since 2007, a few words have risen to the fore when the general populace in this country is asked, what are Christians like? And a few of those words are judgmental, hypocritical, and anti-gay. Three of the first words that pop out of people's minds when they say, what are Christians like? And in survey after survey, in study after study, by various groups, that's the opinion that people have. That's probably informed by how people act, informs then their theology and their view of God. If we think that God is constantly out to judge, then we feel constantly guilty before that God. We're not free to live as God's friends. Rather, we are scared, we are scared into believing that that God is real, scared into that judgment house God. And if we feel constantly guilty, our way of spreading good news becomes telling other people how guilty they are. Thus the judgmental. Thus the overly critical. Right? The good news, the good news or the gospel is not hell and judgment avoidance. That's not the good news that we proclaim as Christian people. Friends, hear me. I believe in hell. I believe there is judgment, okay? So if you're worried about that today, don't worry about it. I believe that exists. But good news is not about what you are not. Good news is not about what you are not. The good news is about what God is for. God is for love. God is for justice. God is for peace. God is for truth. God is for us. That's why God sent his only son, God loves the world God made, right? Without exception in that. God so loved the world. But God mourns what we do to this world and to one another. And God is seeking to repair that world. So are we convinced in our mind that God is like Santa Claus, who is making a list, checking it twice, checking up on us, constantly judging and critiquing us, maybe, maybe like your own parents did, or that aunt or something. Uh, do we believe that? 
Or is our conception of God like the bloodthirsty, avenging Greek gods? Is that the picture we have of God? Friends, Jesus didn't call, come to condemn, but to save. Jesus calls us his friends. So can you get over your guilt and believe Jesus? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.